I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of LiveWire is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, and then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Coming up in the next hour, it's a musician who played in the band for his father's television show at 14. It's a comedian who spent a day in a bathtub with Carrie Brownstein, well, near Carrie Brownstein. And it's an author and self-professed introvert who forced herself to go to a Tony Robbins personal power workshop and said of her entrance, Greeters wearing Unleash Your Personal Power t-shirts and ecstatic smiles line the entrance, springing up and down, fists pumping. You can't get inside without slapping them five. I know, because I tried. It's, it's... author Susan Kane and music from Alfredo Rodriguez on this edition of Livewire Radio. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Courtney Hommeister, and you also have comedy from Faces for Radio Theater to look forward to, and poet Scott Poole with some always relevant reflections from the pool. And of course, we've got music from our house band led by Mr. Ralph Huntley. the boys. So as I mentioned earlier, we have Susan Kane on the show later, and she's written a book called Quiet, and it's about how the attitudes toward introversion have changed in this country and how, in her mind, we might actually be well served to change them back to where they were in about 1900-ish. Her book tells the story of a country at the turn of the last century that was moving from a more agricultural economy to a business economy. And with it, and with a little help from Dale Carnegie, we came to a new ideal, the extrovert, the salesman, the entertainer. And one unexpected result that she wrote about in the book was what this did to our perception of people who didn't like public speaking. That we have come as a culture to perceive an aversion to public speaking as a pathology as opposed to a preference. And I'm only speaking from my own experience, but it seems to me to be just the opposite. I mean, not that something has to be a pathology, but if anything, it feels like the compulsion to perform might be a bit pathological, not the aversion to it. (laughs) Um, Because performing by its nature has this element of fear in it, and the only people who aren't afraid are people who aren't about to do anything interesting, like college professors who are just going through the motions or Justin Bieber. (laughs) And yet... People continue to do it, some with almost crippling anxiety. Daniel Smith refers to these people in his book, Monkey Mind, as counterphobics. And they're people who continually return to an activity that causes them distress rather than run away from it screaming or attempt to throat punch it like any logical person would do. (laughs) Smith quotes the great cellist Pablo Casals as saying, stage fright never left me throughout my whole career. And this is the experience of a surprising number of performers. 
Jay Moore, he was an actor who was an SNL cast member. He was once so terrified that he ran all the way from the Midtown studio at 30 Rock to his apartment in the village in the middle of a show on Saturday night. Rod Stewart once sang an entire song at the Fillmore East from behind a stack of speakers. It's not just limited to the wildly famous who perform for millions. I once had a case of stage fright that involved believing wholeheartedly that I would forget how to read halfway through the speech I was giving. (laughs) Yes, it's illogical, but you can't fight with your brain. Your brain will win every time because it's your brain and it's actually running the fight. But my favorite story is about Tom York from Radiohead. A Radiohead joined R.E.M. on their monster tour in 1995, and Tom became friends with the lead singer, Michael Stipe. And York tells the story of later just crumbling under the pressure of stadium shows after he played the Glastonbury Festival in front of 80,000 people. And he said something just snapped. And he asked Michael Stipe how he dealt with it, and Stipe responded, I just keep repeating to myself, I'm not here. This isn't happening. I'm not here. This isn't happening. And then those words found their way into a Radiohead song, How to Disappear Completely. And Stipe had it right. I think the only way to deal with standing in front of 80,000 people and knowing you're largely in control of whether or not each one of them has a good time for the next 20 minutes would be to completely disconnect from your experience. Because if your brain actually connected to the magnitude of that situation, something inside you would break. Or you would turn into Bono. And I don't know which is worse. I just, I don't think humans were built for experiences like that, but so many of us push through the fear. And for rock stars, the benefits are obvious, right? It's groupies, tour buses, the eventual decline into drug and alcohol use, if you've watched VH1 behind the music. But for others, what keeps them in the game? Is it the desire to be known? Not known as in famous, but known as in finally understood by thousands? And if one were to accomplish that, would it be as satisfying as being truly known by one person? It seems like that would take a lot less work and time in motels, depending on the person that you're trying to impress. (laughs) I don't know the answers to these questions, but I do know that a fear of public speaking shouldn't be considered a pathology. It's just good common sense. So the next time someone asks you why you're afraid to speak in public, ask them the more logical question. Why aren't you? Our first guest tonight is a young jazz pianist who began his formal music training in Havana, Cuba, when he was seven. Alfredo Rodriguez's father had a television show in Cuba, and Alfredo began playing in the show's band when he was 14, performing every day and writing arrangements for all types of music, from boleros to rock to techno. In 2006, he was invited to play the Montreux Jazz Festival, where the festival director asked him if he would play for Quincy Jones. He is not an idiot, so he said yes. And six years later, Quincy was co-producing his debut record, Sounds of Space. Quincy says of Rodriguez, I have been surrounded by the best musicians in the world my entire life, and he is one of the best. Please welcome Alfredo Rodriguez.
That was Alfredo Rodriguez. He is in Portland performing at the 10th annual Portland Jazz Festival. More information about Alfredo can be found at alfredomusic.com. You're listening to Livewire Radio. I, Zeus, King of Olympus, have called you, gods of the Greeks, all here to this magnificent banquet to revel in our glory. Uh, for Olympus! Poseidon, ruler of the seas, and Hades, lord of the underworld. Without you by my side, I would never have defeated my father Kronos, lord of the titans. And Hera, goddess of marriage, and my dear wife, slash sister, and my brother Ares... God of war, as fine a soldier as I've ever known. And yes, Athena, I see you there, goddess of wisdom. I thank you for your counsel. To all of you mighty gods. (coughs) Oh, uh, who am I forgetting down there? It is I, Zeus. Ah, yes, Apollo, god of light. Uh, You will always have a place at Olympus. As I was saying, the era of... I as well, Zeus, am here. Uh, whoops, sorry. Uh, Chanel, goddess of flight attendants and sheetrock removal. Hello. Uh, <laughs> sorry. Um, and, and to all of us, let us be... Oh, <coughs> so, sorry. Uh, Lorzan, god of high-fiber cereals. I, uh, thank you for coming. We appreciate all you do. Moving on, I feel... Uh, hello. What's up? Uh, Claudelia, yes. Goddess of the library and also of weasels and stoats. And some, but not all, types of ferrets. Um, I, I didn't see you behind Ares there. Okay, is that all of us? Uh, hey, Zeus. Oh, Goddamicus, god of banging your shin into the coffee table. <laughs> I, uh, I didn't know you were coming, and, and uh, frankly, you weren't supposed to be invited. Hera, I'm looking at you. All of you, welcome. Uh, you know, before I finish my little spiel here, can you just raise your hand if I haven't acknowledged you yet? Oh, Jesus. Oh, who? Nothing, nobody. Okay, so... All right, let's see. Who do I have down there? Um, Morel, goddess of awesome mixed CDs. Davros, god of casseroles and hot dishes that aren't Italian. Uh, Niana, goddess of getting a really good stretch of green lights in a row. Uh, okay, Cory. Cory, god of those rubber things you put on your keys so you know which key is for which door. Cory, hello. Um... Mionysus, the god of footstools. Uh, Finagor, goddess of waking up and starting to get ready for work and then realizing it's Saturday and then getting to go back to bed. Okay, you know what? That, that is it. Okay, no more. No more gods. I'm here too, you Screw it. Just screw the whole thing. You try to organize a decent bacchanalia, you order a couple party subs, and then people you didn't account for just show up. No RSVP, no nothing. I have had it with this polytheism. I'm going to look into that religion with the magic underwear. Do you think we can still eat the subs? Hands up my sub! That was Sean McGrath, Andrew Harris, and Trisha Ferguson. You're listening to Livewire, the radio variety show that was just as rocked as you were by that whole missing dress shirt scandal on Downton Abbey last week. <laughs> Next week, shoes. Coming up, comedian Ian Carmel, quiet author Susan Kane, poet Scott Poole, and more music from Alfredo Rodriguez. We'll be right back. Our next guest was voted the funniest person in Portland two years ago, and 
since then, he's been a touring comedian. He's just been beating up comics in cities across the land as he's still under the impression that he's competing with them for a title. In addition to comedy clubs around the country, he's performed at the Bridgetown Comedy Festival, LA's Comedy Store, and San Francisco's Sketch Fest. You also might remember Ian from his memorable turn on IFC's Portlandia as the guy Carrie Brownstein electrocuted in a bathtub. As you remember. Uh, He's also a post-game analyst for the Portland Trailblazers, and he has his own weekly column called Portland As, insert an expletive, the bad one. Please welcome Ian Carmel to Livewire. I, I have a girlfriend, which is weird, because I look like I'm constantly getting over a bad breakup. That's, that's my look all the time. I catch myself in the mirror sometimes. I'm like, how you doing, buddy? You doing okay? <laughs> Maybe shave? Maybe go outside today? No? <laughs> I, uh, she, she's amazing. I still don't know what I'm doing. We just celebrated our fourth anniversary, which is awesome. Yeah, thank you. You're right. I'm an amazing boyfriend. I'm an amazing boyfriend. You're right to clap for me. Thank you. I, uh, no, she, she's like way better than me. I don't understand what she's doing with me. Like, here's a common night for us. She'll have to go to bed early because she has to work the next day and I won't let her because I just smoked a bunch of pot and found out that if I talk into my desk fan, I sound like a robot, right? (laughs) She's way better at fighting than me, too. She's way better at fighting. She can come up with great metaphors to explain exactly how she feels. We'll be arguing and she'll be like, I feel like you don't even know who I am. I'm a book that you haven't even bothered to open yet. You don't know what's in this book, the plots, or the characters. Crack it open sometime. You might find out something you like. I'm like... You, you win. I'll bring in the groceries. Fine. I, like... I can't argue like that because I have to use metaphors that make sense to me, which aren't any good in a fight. You know what I mean? I'll be like... Oh, you're a book that I haven't opened? Well, I'm a big box with a question mark on it, and you're a Mario who can't jump high enough. That's what's going on here. Yeah, what's in the box? It is a mushroom, a flower, a star, a slightly different mushroom? You don't know. There's a lot of mushrooms in here, by the way. Both kinds, both kinds. environmentally friendly this year it's it's hard though it's hard to be environmentally friendly sometimes a lot of these organizations that are into preserving the environment go a little bit too far for me like uh, like PETA people for the ethical treatment of animals I'm with them on a lot of things but there is one thing that they're against that I cannot get down with no matter what because I think it's one of the most beautiful things on the planet and PETA wants to get rid of it completely and that thing is monkeys Dressed like cowboys. <laughs> riding around on dogs like they're horses. Yeah. Oh, it's amazing. It's a beautiful, it's one of the most beautiful things on the planet. If you haven't seen it, YouTube it immediately. If you leave right now, we'll all understand. Everyone, it's, it's amazing. And Peter wants to get rid of it completely. Why? Because the monkey's unhappy for the two and a half minutes that's on the back of the dog? Well, guess what, monkey? Ian Carmel's not happy 24 hours a day either. I go through stuff all the time. Nobody's passing around petitions to make t-shirts longer so the bottom of my belly doesn't hang out so it looks like my torso has a chin. That's not happening. (laughs) Nobody has ever thrown a bucket of blood on a girl who wouldn't sleep with me. That's never happened. (laughs) You want to know what I do? I suck it up. I move on with my life. Suck it up, monkey. Put a hat on. You're going for a ride. I do comedy and, and, and I share I have a Netflix account I like to watch movies on the road and I share my Netflix account with a couple of my friends and I think at this point I am properly able to diagnose a depression problem in one of my friends based on the movies Netflix is now recommending I watch I'm worried about it because Netflix is like maybe you'd like to watch a hopeless family drama where everything falls apart at some point Or perhaps a documentary where there's no justice for anyone. 
Or here's a whole genre of movies because you fell asleep crying watching Parenthood. Good, good, good. <laughs> I used to work at Netflix, too. That was my last job. I worked in the call center, which was fine because the only people who called in were uh, old people and jerks. That was it. Those were the only people who called in. And, and helping the old people was actually kind of fun because solving their problem was kind of like being the world's most boring detective. You know what I mean? Like... <laughs> Because they'd call in with the problem like, why does Forrest Gump have AIDS in this movie? Uh, uh, oh, because you're watching Philadelphia. Thank you for calling. <laughs> they fired me. Uh... They fired me from that job. I, uh, if, if you get fired from your job and you're walking home and it's raining and disgusting out like it so often is here and you get a phone call from your, from your partner and it's them breaking up with you and leaving you for another person because you're talking to the box fan too much or, <laughs> and the car drives by you down the street and hits a puddle and splashes you with a bunch of disgusting, dirty street trash water. But then the next thing that comes down that street is a monkey dressed like a cowboy on the back of a dog. You're having a great day. I hope you guys have a great day. I've been Ian Carmel. Thank you, Portland. Ian Carmel, everybody. Ian Carmel, and you're listening to Livewire Radio. You can find Ian's touring schedule at iancarmel.com. That's Carmel with a K, because he just wants to make things more difficult for you. If you're in the Portland area, come to our next live show at the Alberta Rose Theater on March 2nd. Guests include musician and comedy powerhouse Reggie Watts, Leonard Cohen biographer Sylvie Simmons, author Jess Walter, musical guest Joshua James, and telekinesis, and others. Are you Miss Davis? Oh, yes. Great. Uh, I'm Gary Withers. I'm here to interview for the customer service reposition. You are in the right place. Come on in and sit down. Thank you. Well, Mr. Withers, I have looked over your resume, and your qualifications check out pretty well. I agree. <laughs> That's funny. Okay. Uh, now, tell me something that's not on your resume. Tell me about you. Oh, gosh. So many things. Uh, I have a Boston Terrier named Squirmles. Oh, uh, he's my pride and joy. <laughs> I'm a total people person. Huh. Yeah, uh, I run Copper Mans. They're just kind of like Iron Mans, but instead of running leg, there's a Zumba leg. <laughs> oh, that's great. Right. Um, I'm sorry. Can we go back to the people person thing? Sure. What does that mean? Uh, I don't follow. I mean, you're like the fifth person to say that today, and I, I-, I don't get it. Oh, really? Well, I I guess it just means that I'm kind of an extrovert. I'm good around people. Yeah, I can talk to them. Yeah, everyone can talk to people. I'm talking to you right now, and I'm doing a pretty good job of it. So are you like a great orator or something? No, sorry. I I guess I just mean I like people. Yeah, in comparison to what? Excuse me? I mean, I get it. You like people, but compared to what? Like lemurs or fried chicken or jazzercise? What? Well, uh, I like fried chicken, too. (laughs) Stay with me, Gary. Is, is being a people person like a literal thing where you're actually a person that is made up of various different people? Like that fella in the Silence of the Lambs who made a suit out of ladies? Uh, no, I'm, I'm not the Silence of the Lambs guy. Well, that's reassuring, I guess. Anyway, um, I'm also great at event planning. Uh, at my last job, I organized a twister tournament that only got awkward like four or five times. Okay, uh, that's great. Can we go back to the people person thing? Oh, boy. What is it about people that you like? Um, Because I don't get it. Have you met people? People are terrible. I mean, those guys who wait until they're at the very front of the line of traffic to merge in, like, oh, sorry, I don't understand how merging works, and you know they know. Or like fascist dictators or joggers. It seems like fascist dictators are a little worse than the merging guys. Wake up, Gary. I mean... Given a choice between every species, you actually choose humans? Well, yeah. 
we're awful. We're the worst. We're so neurotic. Like a lion would never say, oh, you know, I really want to kill that antelope, but I don't want to seem too full of myself. I just want everyone to like me. Don't you just want to punch that lion? That would put my life at risk, I think. Look, I'm a human and I am awful. I once broke up with a guy because he had this one really long eyebrow hair and I was like, can you not see that? You know, I think I might go. You know what? Chuck, can you come in here, please? Uh, Yeah, what is it? Gary, I want you to punch Chuck. I'm sorry. Just punch him right in his stupid human face. Uh, uh, Please don't. I... I, I, I won't. I wouldn't. Okay, good. Why not? Because you just can't go around punching people. Excellent. Not a puncher. Okay. You are ready for the second part of the interview. Chuck will take you down to the Thunderdome. You have a Thunderdome? Well, it's actually more of like an open-air cage of death. You know, don't worry about it. It's not as bad as it sounds. Andrew Harris, Sean McGrath, and then Tina Turner. Susan Cain is an introvert, and she's proud of it. She would scream it from the rooftops if she wasn't, you know, an introvert. She practiced corporate law and taught negotiation skills to lawyers and businessmen and university students before her interest in introversion caused her to spend seven years researching and writing a book on the subject. Her writing has been featured in the New York Times... O Magazine, Psychology Today, and her book, Quiet, The Power of Introverts in a World That Can't Stop Talking, became an instant New York Times bestseller and was featured in a Time Magazine cover story. Her TED Talk has received almost 3.8 million views, so she may have hit a nerve with this one. Please welcome the quiet but powerful Susan Cain to Livewire. Welcome to the show, Susan. Thank you. It's great to be here. It's great to have you. Um, so you worked on this book for seven years. What was the impetus for, for you for doing all of this research on introversion? Well, um, gosh, you know, the, the impetus for writing the book is that I've kind of been living the book my entire life since yeah. I was four years old. I think I've really been thinking about these questions. But why the process took that seven years, I knew that this was an incredibly counterintuitive thesis. So I felt like every single, the thesis being, introverts actually have this kind of secret power that no one is paying attention to. um, And it's grossly undervalued in this culture. And I knew it was so counterintuitive that I wanted every single assertion I made to be backed up by lots of research. It's absolutely filled with with facts and studies. So, but you you actually you opened the book talking about Rosa Parks. What made her a good model for you to talk about the power of introverts? Well, because I was struck by Rosa Parks, and I think this she died before I actually started working on the book. But I still remember the day that she died and listening to the obituaries that were read on the radio and how struck I was by them. They were talking about how she had been timid, um, petite, soft-spoken, unassuming. And I was struck by how, I guess I hadn't really thought before about what Rosa Parks must have been like, but I I would have assumed that she was kind of this fierce, larger-than-life character because you kind of think, we're conditioned to think that the kind of person who can who can affect that great a change and take that powerful a stand must also be very bold and very fierce and very outgoing. And she wasn't. And I was really struck by that, you know, the, the quiet power that she had. And then I started looking around and I realized, gosh, you know, so many of the transformative leaders of the 20th century had had this kind of quiet, um, uh, more unassuming style. Yeah. Uh, many of our great creative minds. And yet... And yet our kids and, and us as grown-ups are, are sent the message that we shouldn't be that way. Well, right. You, you talk at one point about sort of the, the winning of the culture of personality over the culture of character. And, you know, humility was something that it seems that Rosa Parks had in spades. And in this new sort of culture of the, of the extrovert, humility is lost, right? Yeah, I believe humility is lost, and, and, and I think it's getting worse with every passing moment, really. Um, I mean, we know there, there are studies coming out now of young people that, that show that um, young people nowadays are much more self-centered and narcissistic and much less empathetic than they mm-hmm. were in years past, and it's, like, it's getting worse every year. Why do you think that that's happening? I think it's happening because uh, this is a culture that's so 
prizes self-presentation and that is basically coaching young people from the day they're very little um, mm -hmm. to, to be thinking about how do I present myself, how do I make myself larger than I really am. You know, the phrase larger than life is something that we are conditioned to aspire to in mm -hmm. one way or another. We're not thinking as much about um, how can we be sometimes smaller than life is actually a good thing. You know, I, I think that shyness is a kind of civilizing force because a shy person, what, what they're doing instinctively, they're saying, I care so much about you and your opinion that I'm giving you the power to make me feel bad if you don't think highly of me because mm -hmm. I care about you. It, it's a kind of instant regard for other people. Yeah. And, um, and yet, it's interesting to me, you know, one of the things I found in the year since my book came out is that if anything, I think shyness is even a more pejorative term in this culture than introversion. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You talk in the book about the difference between shyness and introversion. Can you define that a little bit? Yeah, so shyness is about the kind of fear of social judgment, you know, the, the, the fear that other people are thinking poorly of you. Um, so you're about to go on a date or a job interview or that kind of thing. You're unduly worried about it. That's a shy person. Um, an introvert is somebody who gets their energy from being, who feels most alive, most energized in environments where there's just kind of less stuff going on, you know, quieter yeah. environments. So you can be an introvert without being shy, you can be shy without being an introvert, and then some people are both. And the book is really about both of these states of mind. Well, I, I think, and we were talking a little bit earlier about um, this idea of selling yourself, and, and you talk in the book about uh, groups like Toastmasters who teach people to sell their stories. And it felt to me like it was sort of, lies winning over the truth a little bit in terms of the way that we, we relate to each other and how honest we are with each other. Well, you know, it's funny. I have a kind of complicated relationship to that because I, I wouldn't say that exactly. You know, um, I mean, my own experience was I had this book coming out, right, a year ago, and I knew I wanted to be able to go out and speak about it. You know, I'm really passionate about the ideas, and I didn't want my fear standing in the way, right? So I actually started going to Toastmasters meeting. I, I embarked on what I called my year of speaking dangerously, where right. I, I was going like, to confront my fear of public speaking once and for all. And, um, and so I don't think I was being taught how to lie on stage. I mean, I, I actually think what happened to me was that I got more and more comfortable so that I could be a tr telling the truth and, and more and more authentic on stage. So, you know, I think these things are complicated. Yeah, it's, yeah, you sort of have to try to sell to show your authentic self. Yeah. But it can't yeah. be so authentic that they see your fear. It's a tough line. Yes, it is a really yes. tough line. It is. Um, <laughs> one of the things that you did, um, you did go to the Tony Robbins Personal Power uh, Workshop. Yes, I did. Which sounded <laughs> a little like hell. Um, <laughs> but did, did you get anything out of that experience? You did it for the book. I, I don't know if you know what these seminars are like, but you're, you're in a room with like 4,000 other people from 9 in the morning until midnight. I kid you not, like, you don't take a break that entire time. You were there, you're eating at your chair the whole time, um, and you're also dancing throughout the day. Like, it's like to you do a little exercise, and then, yeah. you, and then you go out into the aisle and you do a crazy dance to some Top 40 song. Mm -hmm. And I was like, you know what? I, I actually really liked aerobics. I've got to start doing more of this when I get back home. <laughs> So well, I got that, that was worth your $900, absolutely. <laughs> a reminder to go to aerobics. Um, it was also, I, but, you know, in terms of, like, the, the implicit message that was being taught at the seminar, aside from the, the dancing in the aisles, it was kind of horrifying because, you know, we, for example, we had to do this one exercise where Tony Robbins said to us, I want you to, to try to greet somebody, you know, pair up with somebody and shake your hands as if you're introducing yourselves to them for the first time. And you should pretend that you're about to do a sales deal. And if you don't close this deal, everybody you care about is going to die like pigs in hell. <laughs> Enjoy. Enjoy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, did it change the way that you shook hands? To no. have that in your head? No. No, <laughs> no it didn't. I, I, you, know, you, were, you were crying while it happened because <laughs> you were imagining your family I was dying. Really? 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 I, you know, I, I, I don't like going through life that way. I don't like the idea of this is the persona you should be presenting. Well, I, it's interesting because they talk a lot about, you know, using the personal power stuff in, in business. And you also went to Harvard Business School, which I found fascinating. And um, there was some advice that you listed in the book that I was just appalled by um, one, that they get from Harvard Business School. One is speak with conviction. Even if you believe something only 55 percent, say it as if you believe it 100 percent. And the second is, don't think about the perfect answer. It's better to get out there and say something than never get your voice in. 
which I thought, what does that do to businesses when people are just spouting and not thinking about it? Yeah, so this is a very problematic and complicated thing. I, I mean, I went to Harvard Business School at first because, um, you know, I was writing this book about introversion, and I was chatting with a friend of mine who had graduated from there, and he said, you know, you must go spend some time at, at HBS. It is the spiritual capital of extroversion. Um, so you've <laughs> got to go check it out. And so I did, and... Um, you know, it, it's a school that is training our future leaders, business leaders and civic leaders. And, and the idea behind what you were just talking about is that if you are a leader, there are going to be times where you have imperfect information, and then you're faced with this really complex question of, should you act in the face of the imperfect information, or should you wait to get more? And if you wait, you do run the risk of having people start to lose confidence and people yeah. losing morale. So it's a complicated question. And Harvard Business School comes down, I would say, pretty squarely on the side of people will lose morale, you'd better act, and so we are going to train you to project this kind of certainty. Mm -hmm. um, and we're going to train you in class. You know, classes are graded 50% based on class participation. And, um, I and just the wanted the percentage this. to be higher than 55%. I just wanted it to be 70%, oh, you yeah. know what I'm saying? <laughs> Rather than 55%, right, sure. Right, but right. Uh, I, yeah. I didn't attend Harvard Business School. That is obvious by my car. It's a Civic. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> um, and another thing that you talk about um, in business is this shift with businesses to group dynamics, to open spaces. Um, what for you, what are the downfalls of, of that, of those ideas? First of all, we know that this isn't just introverts, but extroverts also um, produce more ideas and better ideas. We know this from 40 years of research. When they are brainstorming on their own, you know, sitting by yourself, just thinking of as many ideas as you can come up with, you come up with better ideas when you're on your own. So um, we also need the process of exchanging ideas. It's not to say that group work is, is entirely useless, um, but we need much more of a hybrid process than we have now. Um, and then for introverts in particular, they really, really require um, chunks of solitude in their day. Yeah. And when they're not getting it, they're not thinking as deeply or as creatively. So we've got this entire um, educational system that is now based around group work, um, an entire workforce that's based around herding people into teams and, and compelling them to work collectively all the time, you know, in big open plan offices. And we're not getting the best of people's brains by doing that. So yeah. it's not in anybody's interest. Well, and you also talked about groupthink in terms of the loudest voice being heard instead of the most informed voice being heard, and that that's problematic in terms of getting to the right outcome. Yeah, and you know, I'm sure if you think of a group situation that you've been in recently, you know, and it could be anything, it could be a recent PTA meeting or, or whatever, a jury that you were sitting on, um, you see this dynamic of groups tending to follow the opinion of the most assertive person in the room. That's just what happens. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of crazy when you think about that, that if, if the objective is to come up with the best idea or the most creative idea, it's crazy to think that the answer to that would be to gather a group of people together and see what comes out. Because really, you're just hearing generally from one person, you know, that most assertive person whose idea kind of percolates to the top. Yeah, yeah. So it's interesting to me that you wrote this book and you did this TED Talk, and it was amazing. If you can find it, just go to, to I think it's TED.com and, yeah, and, and do a search on Susan Cain. And um, you were just extremely comfortable, it seemed, doing that. But, <laughs> <laughs> but you, you have written this book, and now you have to go around the country and talk to big groups of people about introversion. How, how has that been for you? Do you feel like more of an extrovert now? How has that changed you? You know, it's so funny. People ask me this a lot. Do you feel like more of an extrovert? I mean, no, I mean, not at all. Um, I, I'm more comfortable with speaking than I used to be. But in terms of, you know, no offense to all of you, but like on any given day, I would much rather be sitting at home with my family or, um, you know, sitting by myself in a cafe with my laptop. I, I, I have come to really love the speaking and especially the, um, you know, the ability that it gives me to connect with people and get yeah. ideas across. But no, I think you can get comfortable, but still kind of um, maintain your underlying stripes. Yeah. 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 And I, I was also struck before when you were talking about Michael Stipe saying, you know, he kind of disconnected from the whole experience. Yeah. Because people ask me all the time, you know, what was it like to be up there on the TED stage? And the answer is, I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> You weren't there. I really have no idea. Was, yeah. 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 I mean, I know I was there. Yeah. 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 But, no, you're on video. It was you. Yeah. <laughs> I totally saw you. <laughs> 
Um, yeah, just, it's interesting because you were saying you were feeling like, like uh, it's kind of getting worse in, in terms of the way that we're going um, in terms of extroverts and, and introverts. And I don't know if you, have you read the work of Sherry Turkle? She wrote a book called The Flight from Conversation. And it's about how technology has sort of taught us that solitude is a problem that needs to be solved. And we solve it with things like our phones. What do you think is lost when we lose time alone to ourselves to think? Well, you know, I think that we've always known that there's a kind of transcendent power to solitude. I mean, all of, all of our religions have known this. You go into poetry, you know, you have William Wordsworth wandering lonely as a cloud. He was doing that for a reason. Um, so we're losing our ability to kind of connect with a deeper part of ourselves. And then there's just the, the, the phenomenon of the fact that we are all such intensely social creatures. Introverts too, all social creatures. So we instinctively pick up on other people's ideas. Um, so you can't be around other people without kind of picking up on what they're thinking and feeling, yeah. which makes it literally impossible to truly know what you're thinking and feeling. So if you really want to be creative, you have to be willing to absent yourself um, some of the time. And this is why, you know, when, when psychologists look at who have been the most intensely creative people over time, they almost always find people with streaks of introversion, you know, people who can go and remove themselves. Yeah. Um, the book is The Power of Introverts in a World That Can't Stop Talking. The author is Susan Kane. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you I so, so much for joining it. us. Really Susan Kane, everybody. Thank you. There's an old saying, give a man a fish, he'll ask you why you brought a big smelly fish over to his house. Maybe he'll eat it, maybe he won't, but a fish is still a really weird gift. That's one reason Whole Foods Markets created the Whole Planet Foundation, which seeks to alleviate poverty in communities where Whole Foods Markets sources products. The Whole Planet Foundation helps establish small lending centers, which in turn jumpstart self-sufficient local businesses, like fish markets, for instance. That's way more effective than airdropping fish from a helicopter or something. Also, that would be super gross. More information on the Whole Planet Foundation can be found at wholefoodsmarkets.com. We'll be right back. poetic thoughts on the subject of introversion, please welcome the author of Hiding from Salesman and the Sliding Glass Door, poet Scott Poole with Reflections from the Pool. I'm a poet, which is one of the things introverts do. <laughs> and so I should know a little bit about introversion, so I wrote this poem about things to know about introverts. Introverts like to stand in people's living rooms when they're not home. Imagine the conversation we might have with them. Build a one-fifth scale replica of their house inside their house, entirely out of books, suiting their interests and education level. Have coffee in the little book house on the carpet. Read selections from the walls until the walls collapse, then roll around in the books with unbridled glee till we have to pack it all up before the owners get home, leaving no trace of our solitary bacchanalia. We also don't see the point in ironing a shirt. We don't even see the point of other people. All introverts eventually try to move to a dream cabin in the woods where we can finally have this piece to write, the world-changing novel that no one will ever see. But when we get there, we invariably find a mountain lion in the process of eating the previous introverted novelist. 
and our cabin dream is reduced to nothing but a mess of blood, hair, and poorly crafted prose. <laughs> Yet introverts aren't that different. We have heroes like other people, like Emily Dickinson, for instance, <laughs> and Vincent Van Gogh. M and Vince are the Marilyn Monroe and James Dean of introverts. <laughs> Many of us have imagined them married. She writes a poem about him and hides it. He paints a picture of her and sends it to his brother. <laughs> they stare at each other for about an hour, then he cuts his ear off. <laughs> she silently bandages his head as he cries. Then they make crazy animal love. I can't be the only one who's imagined this scenario. <laughs> Yet still introverts remain useful in today's society. For instance, if there were no introverts, public radio would fold in about a week. <laughs> It's introverts reading introverted things to other introverts without having to gaze upon each other's faces. <laughs> With their accompanying introverted or extroverted nose hair, what could be better? It's nice to pretend Robert Siegel is just another one of those voices in your head. And if you're a schizophrenic, that's better than Satan's throaty bad advice in your ear all the time. <laughs> and when we go to sleep after a long day of hiding, every introvert has the same dream of a creative sheep wearing Buddy Holly glasses that's ripped some wool off of its own side, knitted little booties for its hooves, and is now tiptoeing quietly away from the other sheep an especially talented sheep that has learned to speak English and realizes that its special talent is at exact cross-purposes to every reason a sheep has for existing, and now it must leave the herd for some dream pasture in the woods, and a sheep that's quietly pleading to only you for help in its escape. Don't count me. Please, I beg of you. <laughs> Don't count me tonight, or I'll build a house in your living room when you're not home. Thank you. Scott Poole. You're listening to Livewire Radio. We know you have many radio variety shows to choose from, and your business is important to us. That's why you can find our broadcast on this fabulous station, as well as our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, SoundCloud, and our website at livewireradio.org. Ugh. Caring for those in need. Ugh, blah. Shush. I can't believe we're sitting here. A woman died, Cameron. Yeah, a woman we really don't know. I knew her. We worked together for five years. You get to know people. And that means we just kill a Saturday? All due respect. It's Sunday, and she had a heart attack. <sighs> This shirt is really itchy. Good. I mean it. Well, I can't think why. Oh, that's right. You insist on using the cleaners on Skyview. It's not the cleaners' fault, Tina. It is their fault. And you are always itchy and grumpy, and you could solve it, but you don't. Whatever. Did anyone call us yesterday when we were gone? I don't know. Why are you asking now? I, I, I just thought of it. You want to make out? Will you shut up? Come on, we could go in that little room over there. The confessional? Yeah, whatever. And we remember her passions in life. We can't make out in there. Maybe the coat closet. Oh, so, so you want to? A lifelong love of public service. No. Dead person, shut up. Giving her time to shelters and <sighs> Do you have any food in your purse? I don't have a purse. Well, what's that thing? It's a clutch. Do you have any food in your clutch? No. Uh, excuse me. I have some graham crackers if you'd like them. I'm sorry, no. Yeah, here. please, thank you. Mmm, mmm, these are amazing. Uh, thanks, uh... Mary. Thanks, Mary. Mm. She was nice. Very nice. I wonder if she has any juice. Well, if she has crackers, she might have juice. Who would think someone would be packing crackers at a funeral? Oh, man, these graham crackers have the cinnamon on top. You are mm. unbelievable. Believing fellowship to be the marrow 
I'm really thirsty. Hey, what's that over there? That jug? Yeah, huh? That's the sacramental wine. Well, when do we do that? You have to be Catholic, Cam. Look, I'm going. I don't care. I'm going to sneak a little sip. I'm so thirsty. Well, stop eating the crackers, then. I can't. They're so good. All right, I got some. You want any? No, I cannot believe you did that. Hmm. Hmm. Man, there are a lot of people here. I know. How many people will be at your funeral? I don't know. I bet I have more at mine. Are you kidding me? Tina, I have way more activities. What? Well, my trivia team and those associated with trivia, my jujitsu classmates, my regular friends, my high school friends, my World of Warcraft friends, and my workmates. It's going to be standing room only. Would it kill you to come to one trivia night? It really might. Well, it, if it did, I'd make sure your funeral was much nicer than this one. Well, sometimes you're very sweet. Thanks. Come on. Let's go make out in that coat closet. All right. Can we hit the wine area first? I'm getting thirsty again, and I kind of want to get a little buzz on. Once again, Alfredo Rodriguez.
show for tonight. Thank you so much for listening. Ian Carmel, Susan Kane, and Alfredo Rodriguez. Our house band is Ralph Huntley, Jim Brunberg, and Dave Jorgensen. This show is made possible in part by our sponsors, New Belgium Brewing Company, Whole Foods Market, Ergo Depot, and Burgerville. Additional funding provided by the Regional Arts and Culture Council and Work for Art, the Oregon Cultural Trust, and listeners like you fine people. Hotel accommodations generously provided by the Hotel Deluxe. Our executive producer is Robin Tenenbaum. The show is also produced by Courtney Hommeister and Jim Brunberg. Faces for Radio Theater are writers Sean McGrath and Courtney Hommeister and performers Andrew Harris and Trisha Ferguson. Additional show writers are Jason Rouse, Scott Poole, and Ben Coleman. Sound effects and direction by Jason Rouse. Our technical director is Jonathan Newsom with house sound by Graham Nystrom. Stage management by Matt King. Show theme is written by our house band and Courtney Vondrele. Photography by Jenny Baker. Livewire was created by Kate Sokoloff and Robin Tenenbaum. For more information about Livewire or to subscribe to our podcast, visit livewireradio.org or find us on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. You can also find us on Twitter and Facebook at Livewire Radio. Wouldn't it be amazing to have a piping hot episode of Livewire delivered right to your heart and ears each week? Well, guess what? That can happen when you subscribe to the Livewire podcast feed and you'll get the joy of surprising conversation every week. So go ahead and do it. It's super easy. You click on the button at the top of your podcast app and bam, you are Livewire subscribed. And if you're still, you know, feeling the love, if you're enjoying the show, hey, maybe you could hook us up and uh, leave us a quick review. That'll help more people find out about Livewire. And thank you.